I was thinking Amish, like like the, the beards and the hats. Like that Amish too, too kind of people. Okay. Since um, we spent the day doing Bedika, so I figured we'll divide this up into two parts. First we'll do a halachic part of the shir, and then we'll do a hashkafic part of the shir. But the halachic part of the shir is going to be um, somewhat complicated and pretty high level. So if at any point you don't understand, please stop me <coughs> and I'll repeat. Okay? Okay. First of all, I do want to express my Hakar Satov. My wife already expressed her Hakar Satov of how much it means to us to have all of you come and to clean our house for Pesach. Even though my wife was joking, I hope, when she said, <laughs> when she said that it saved our Shalom Bayes, <laughs> I do know that it's, a, uh, it's not a simple thing to... Uh, I do know... That, Aren't you supposed to be putting Mikey to sleep? <laughs> I just quoted you. I said, even though my wife said it saved our shalom bias, I do want you to know that it means, I was about to say that it means a tremendous amount, and it's, it is a very stressful time. Thanks for coming. It's a very stressful time for families. It used to be that people lived in very small homes, so... To do Badika, what did Badika take? First of all, Badika wasn't spring cleaning. <laughs> and second of all, Badika, I mean, if you lived in a two, three bedroom, like, hut, <laughs> so what did it take to do Badika? Today, Baruch Hashem, we live in Eretz Yisrael in, uh, in three floor homes. So we're very, very blessed. So to, to have you here help us, it's a tremendous, tremendous Hakar uh, Satov on our part to you. So thank you very much. And the Pasuk in Shmois, in Parshas Bo, says, this is the first Maramakam on your source sheet. Shivas yamim matzos teichelu. Seven days you should eat matzos. Ach, we'll see what that means. Ach, bayayim harishon, tashbisu soar mibatechem. On the seventh day, you should be tashbis. We'll see what that means. Remove, but what does remove mean? Soar mibatechem. Any bread that you have in your house, because anyone that eats bread from the first day until the seventh day of Pesach is Chayev Karis. Okay? So, what exactly are you Chayev to do? What would you have said? Just from the Lashon HaPasuk, what exactly is your responsibility? It seems like you have a responsibility from the Pasuk. What's the responsibility? Pick up the bread. Eat matzah, sure. Okay? What was that? Correct. And there's a chiyuv to be tashbase, to remove any bread that you have from your house. When you look at the Gemara Psachim, your second source sheet over here, second source on the sheet, it says, Kivan de bedikas chametz midarabonan, who midaraisa bebito ba'amasagile. So I'm nurabonan midarabonan. So the Gemara says, very interesting, that bedika is really only midarabonan. Everything we just did today is just the Rabbanan. What could you do? Meaning from the Torah. The Torah we just read. All you have to do is bittal. All you have to do is bittal. So everything we just did, was unnecessary. Hours and hours of cleaning. And what could you do? You could just do bittal. There's something called bedika, searching your house, finding the chametz, destroying the chametz. That is all Rabbanan, the Gemara indicates. All there is left is bittal. So if that's the case, 
We have to ask ourselves, what is Bittal? What is Bittal? By the way, it's Machlokas Rishonim exactly why you have to do Bidik at all. Sometimes it's because it won't be a good enough Bittal. Sometimes it's because maybe you'll find Chametz on Pesach and you'll come to eat it because you're used to eating it. Whatever the reasons are, but really, all you have to do is Bittal. Okay? And we, Midrabanan, go crazy to find any piece of chametz and to destroy the chametz. So what is Bittal? Rashi says, Bittal ba'alma, Dechsiv, Tashbisu. If you noticed, the Lashon of the Pasuk was Tashbisu. Tashbisu means literally to remove. Veloksiv tivaru. And it does not say to be mevar. What does mevar mean? To burn. Okay? So v'hashbasa delev, v'hashbasa. So what is this removal? It's a hashvasa belev. It's removing it in your heart. What does removing it in your heart mean? So the Rambam explains, Pashtus, the Rambam is going with Rashi, even though not everybody is so clear on that, but Pashtus, the Rambam is going with Rashi. Umahi hashvasa zu amur b'torah, hi sheyevatel hachamitz belibo, v'yachshavo so ke'afar, v'yosim belibo she'em b'rishus ha'chamitz klal. person should be mevatel hachamitz in his heart, and he should consider it like dust, and he should make it in his heart as if the chametz is not in his rishus at all. And every, any chametz that I do have in my rishus is like offer in my in my property in my home, right? In my dwelling, in my domain, is something that's like dirt, and I have no reason for it whatsoever. In it has no necessity. So this is the declaration that I'm sure you saw your fathers make on the night after B'dikas Chametz, and then probably again, if you went with them to see the Biur Chametz, right? They said, right? That was, they, they made this declaration, that was called Bittal. It's a declaration that this means nothing to you. <coughs> However, this is not so clear. Comes along Taisus, and Taisus asks two questions on Rashi. And each question is a bomb question. This is where it gets somewhat complicated. Up until now, it should be very simple. The Torah used the Lashon of Hashvasa. The Torah did not use the Lashon of Tivaru. Rashi says, what is the indication there? That when you are chayev to remove the chametz from your house, what does it mean to remove the chametz from your house? Bittal. Gemara says, Bittal midairaisa is all that you need. What does it mean, Bittal? Bittal is that your machshavet in your heart, ka'afr the It doesn't say you have to burn it. That's not your responsibility, midairaisa. That's only midairabanan. Midairaisa, it's enough to have a bittal in your heart that this is like dust. Adkan, very easy. Everybody on the same page? Mm-hmm. Questions, comments, reactions? Good. Okay. Take a look in Tysus. Second line. See where it says Vakashalari, four line four words in? Vikashalari. The high hashvasa havarahi. The low bitl. The ri has a question on Rashi. This hashvasa, hashvasa means tashbisu. This removal is havara. I know for sure that it's havara. What does ta- havara mean? To burn. Below bittel. It's not bittel. How do I know? Vitanya bishmaitzan, because you have a brysa. Rivakiva oimer. Ein sarich. Harayu oimer tashbisu. Umatsinu lahavara shi'av malacha. So his first question is as follows. We know that it says, Bayom harishon tashbisu army batechem. On the first day, you should do tashbisu. So we want to know when is the first day. What would you have simply said? From the Torah's Lashon, it says, Ach bayom harishon tashbisu army batechem. So when's the first day? So you would imagine Yom Arishon is the first day of Pesach, right? 
So Rav Akiva says, no, I'll bring you a proof, right, that it can't be the first day of Pesach. What's the proof that it can't be the first day of Pesach? Because you can't do it on Pesach. Why can't you do it on Pesach, says Rav Akiva? Because you're burning it. And burning is an Av Malacha. And of course, the Torah would not be telling you to do an Av Malacha on Yom Tif. So, Toysus' first kasha on Rashi is as follows. You just got done telling us that Tashbisu means Bittal and not Havara <coughs> because the Torah says Tashbisu and it doesn't say Tevaru. But Rivikiva said, what does Tashbisu mean? Right. It must mean Havara. Because otherwise, when would you have thought it was? You would think it's on Yom Rishon of Pesach. It's, not, it's a proof that Yom Rishon doesn't mean Yom Rishon because he assumed that Tashbisu meant burning it. So you, Rashi, are going against an open Gemara. You hear his first question? Again, one more time. I told you to get a little complicated. I appreciate your honesty. Mm-hmm. What did Rashi say? Tashbisu means what? Bittle of the heart, right? Mm-hmm. Saying, to me, this is like dirt. This is like dust, right? Rashi says, how do I know that? Because it says Tashbisu. And it doesn't say Tevaru, which would mean okay. to burn. So Rashi's position is that Tashbisu means bittle, not beer. Okay. But we have a Gemara that says that Tashbisu means beer. Rashi can't go against the Gemara, right? Mm-hmm. Rashi says, I have an open Gemara that says that the word Tashbisu means biur. Where do you see that Gemara? Because Rav Akiva says, it says in the Pasuk on the first day you should do Tashbisu. Does the first day mean the first day of Pesach? Right? The, the Pasuk says, Ach Arishon, Tashbisu On the first day, you should be Tashbis, whatever that means, the Sa'ar from your house, right? Mm-hmm. So, when is the first day? I would have simply said if I was reading the Pasuk, Right? It means the first day of Pesach. Mm-hmm. Rav Akiva says it can't be the first day of Pesach because Tashbisu means Tevaru. It means to burn. Are you allowed to burn things on the first day of Pesach? No. You're not allowed to stop burning your chametz. You're not allowed to burn. First of all, you can't burn your chametz anyway. It's, it's, it's already Pesach. Right? But it, that's not Rav Akiva. Rav Akiva says it's an Av Molacha. It's an Av Molacha. That's, you're not allowed to burn things stam on Pesach. Okay? So if that's the case, what is the Gemara? What is Rav Akiva really saying? What does the word Tashbisu mean? It means to burn. It doesn't mean to be mavatal in your head, it means to burn. So how could Rashi say that the word tashbisu means bittal when the Gemara says clearly, what does it mean? To burn. Got it? Okay, that's the first question that Toysus has on Rashi. So far so good? Okay, a little bit more. Va'od, and furthermore, another question. The tashbisu amrinan lekaman me'ach chilek shehu mishesh shaos ulamala Another question. The Pasuk says ach. Remember before when I read it, I said ach in that funny way? Because ach splits the day. Ach splits the day. Okay? So, Chazal Darshan, that ach means from the sixth hour of the day and on. So let me just explain to you very quickly. We do not work in perfect 12-hour days in Judaism. We know that? There's something called Sha'oz Manios. We take a day... Right? Whatever the amount of time of that day is, and we divide it into twelve chalakim. Okay? Twelve doesn't we don't work with sixty minutes hour uh, sixty minute hours. For the purposes of this marshal, let's work with a sixty minute hour. Okay, let's say there were twelve hours in a day, so you'd have the first hour would be sixty minutes. Okay? The sixth hour would be sixty minutes. Regularly the way it works by us. Let's say you had such a case. So from the sixth hour and on, right, you have to tashbisu so army batechen. That's what it means. Ah. <coughs> What was that? What does it say about Again, look what he says. Ach chilek, right? What does it mean, ach? Chilek means it splits. Shehu mishesh shaos ulamala, from six hours and on. Ba'achari surah lo mahani Okay? Now here's his question. 
there's halacha. Okay, it's, it's going to get, if you've, up until now, if you thought it was complicated, now it's going to get a little bit more complicated. By the way, whenever anyone asks you what the boys are doing in yeshiva all day, right, it's stelling on every single word of every tesis of every rambam, this is the work, okay? You know, girls, when something is asr bahana, and you're not allowed to even have anna from something, like chametz on Pesach, it's taken out of your rishos. That's what it means. It means you do not have ownership over it. Now, just because I don't have ownership over something, right, doesn't mean I can't burn it, okay? Right? But if I don't have ownership over something, Taisa says, how could you do betel to it? What's the Torah telling you? Ach, which means from six hours and on, tashbisu soar mi batechen. You have to be tashbis, the soar from your house. Rashi, you're telling me tashbis means betel. How could I do bittel? It's not even mine anymore to do bittel on. So if somebody comes along and they says, this stuff that's mine, to me it's like offer. It's not yours anymore. It's like me going over to your chametz and saying, your chametz is like dirt to me. Well, that's good news because uh, you don't have any rishos. You don't have any control over my chametz. So Rashi, not only are you going against the Rivakiva that says that tash base means burning, but it can't mean bittel. Because how could you do bittel after the sixth hour? It's already Asr If It's Asr What does that mean, girls? It's out of your Rishos. How could you come along and do bittel to it? It's out of your Rishos already. You're going to come along and say that thing that's already not mine isn't mine? It's already not yours. You hear it? Mm-hmm. Tysus is brilliant, no? Everyone got it clear? Do you make this bracha after you don't own it anymore? <coughs> We're not holding by brachas yet. Okay. Not holding by brachas. Because you're talking about Bedika and Biur. Right. right, but Tysus isn't talking about Bedika and Biur. Remember, he's talking about Bittl. He's talking about Rashi's concept of Bittl. So we have two kashas on Rashi. Rashi came along and said the word Tashbisu means Bittl. Bittl means believe, like the Rambam, right? It means they have in your head, you have to say, this is like offer. So far, so good. It seemed very simple, right? Except, number one, Rivakiva clearly says it doesn't mean Bittl, it means Havara, number one. And number two, you can't do bittel on something that's not yours. The Pasuk is telling you, ach means from the sixth hour and on. How could you do bittel on something that's not yours? It doesn't even make any sense. Okay. Because of this, Tosus comes along. And just to read the bolded words now. Ve'omeri. So Tosus gives his own terrets, argues on Rashi. And he says, When the Gemara says that from the Torah, you only need bittel, mitam, it's for a different reason. The me'acher she'bitlu, Taisa says, no. What's the reason that bittel works? Bittel doesn't mean what Rashi said, a brand new din by Pesach that you can consider your chametz like bread. Bittel's a very famous din. What's the din of bittel? Bittel is hefker. You all know hefker. Mm-hmm. What does hefker mean? Anyway, Anyone can take it. Up for grabs, right? Like I'm sure that, uh, I don't know if they had this when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, kids would go, hefker. Oh, yeah. And kids will come and grab it, right? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. When I was when I was a little kid, so somebody would call out Hefker, and everyone would come and grab. Kind of. I got it first. It was like first come Kilu in. Uh... Okay. So Tais says this is Hefker, this is Hefker, and Hefker is a din that that you could do, you know, in un, under these circumstances. So really, of course, Tashbisu means to burn. Of course, Tashbisu means to burn. Right, and when the to- when the- when we say that the rice a bittel ba'al masagi, that's referring to hefker. Okay. Okay. Now, 
shaila is for us, how would Rashi answer Tysus? Okay, we have two bomb kashas on Rashi that Tysus asks. We have to think about what would Rashi answer. Because, of course, when Rashi was writing his parish, what did he think of? He thought of every single answer that Tysus, that every single kasha that Tysus asked, and he knew all those kashas, and he had answers for them. So we have to answer for Rashi. So for this, we're going to go to the Minchas Chinuch. Okay? I'm going to go to the Minchas Chinuch. What was that? No. Minchas Chinuch. Okay. Ask ourselves the following question. Is... Tashbisu, a passive mitzvah or an active mitzvah? Is Tashbisu a passive mitzvah or an active mitzvah? Okay, so what would be an example of an active mitzvah? Okay? Let's say I don't own a home. Say I don't own a home. Am I chayiv to buy a house to put up a mezuzah? No, you're not chayiv. When you have a home, what are you then chayiv to do? Actively. Okay, good. Let's take chametz. If I don't own a home, am I chayiv to do tashbisu? Pasuk says I have to get rid of all the chametz from my house. If I don't have a home, if I don't have a house, am I chayiv to go buy a house so that I could do tashbisu? No. Okay. What was that? Okay. Let, again, let's let's say I don't have any chametz. Okay. That's an active mitzvah. An active mitzvah is I need to go out to do this mitzvah. Okay? Then there's such a thing called a passive mitzvah. So for example, let's take Shabbos. Okay? There's a mitzvah that you're not allowed to do, a losase, you're not allowed to do malacha on Shabbos. Okay? There's another mitzvah that you have to rest on Shabbos. That's a positive commandment. So there's a negative commandment when it comes to Shabbos, don't do any malacha, and there's a positive commandment, rest on Shabbos. What does rest on Shabbos mean? Don't do any malacha. Right? If you didn't do any malacha on Shabbos, I didn't do anything passively. Not only did I, was I not over the low saseh, but what else happened, girls? I was mekayim the aseh, passively. You get it? Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'm mekayim the mitzvah actively. Oh, you put on tefillin, you put on tzitzis, right? All those things. Sometimes you're mekayim a mitzvah passively. A mitzvah say, Torah says rest on Shabbos, and what do you do? By not doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. By not doing anything, I'm mekayim the mitzvah say. How are we doing over there? Okay, no problem. Okay. Let's take that over to Pesach. So if I don't have any chametz, am I chay- let's go first go with active. If I don't have any chametz, am I actively... If I don't have any chametz, <laughs> am I actively chayiv to go and burn chametz? To go buy chametz to go burn it? No. no. Everyone would agree. But let's say the mitzvah is a passive mitzvah. Of on Pesach, don't have any chametz. So then what happens even if I don't own any chametz? I was mekayim the mitzvah by not having any chametz. You hear? Mm-hmm. So there's, an, there's, one, there's two ways of looking at this. What, how do we, it's just a question. How do we look at this? One way is to look at it to say, you have to actively go out and burn any chametz that you have. And if you don't have any chametz, so then, okay, there's no mitzvah for you to do. It's like I didn't own a house, so I didn't have to put up a mezuzah. Okay? That's an active mitzvah. Or no. 
The mitzvah is don't have any chametz on Pesach. If the mitzvah is don't have any chametz on Pesach, then if I didn't have any chametz on Pesach, I was mekayim the mitzvah. Did you do anything? No. You didn't do anything. Good. Okay. What would be some nafkaminas? A nafkamina means a practical halachic difference, whether you went with one of these two sides. Okay. One nafkamina would be the timing that you have to do this. Okay. Mitzvahs in general, active mitzvahs especially, have timing. So for example, let's say uh, a week before sukkah started, I shook my lulav. Was I mekayim the mitzvah of lulav? No. Why not? Because it's an active mitzvah. What does an active mitzvah tell you? It has to be done within a particular time. If I blow shofar three weeks after Rosh Hashanah, was I yotzei the mitzvah? No, because it wasn't done within, it wasn't done within the time. Okay, good. So now, if we hold that getting rid of your chametz is an active mitzvah, so then what would you say? It has a particular time that it needs to be done, right? Mm-hmm. If you hold getting rid of your chametz as a passive mitzvah, does it matter if, let's say, Rosh Chodesh Adar, I decide to get rid of all of my chametz? No. Why not? Because either way, once Pesach comes, I was passively mekayim that mitzvah, that I had no chametz in my house. Now, girls, if if it's an active mitzvah and it's a time-bound mitzvah, mitzvah sasei shazman grama, and what would you say? Are women chayevas? No. Isn't that interesting? So if you hold it's an active mitzvah versus a passive mitzvah, then there's going to be timing. Right? If it's an active mitzvah, there'll be timing. If it's a passive mitzvah, there's no timing. And if there's timing to it, then it's a mitzvah to say shazman grama. Maybe women are pater. It's funny. We are the ones who... Nah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all, women, all women are voting for it to be active. Why are you saying it's after we No, I'm dafka saying it after you clean. And dafka wow. after the shalom bias issues were brought up. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you another one. Mitzvos srichos kavana. Right? Generally, we say that a mitzvah requires kavana. If it's an active mitzvah. But if it's a passive mitzvah, then all I have to do is be there on Pesach with, with no bread. So it doesn't require any kavana. Here's a really good one. Okay? This is one the mitzvah the Mechaz Kanach brings down. Let's say it's Pesach now. And I see a delicious looking donut that my child has stowed away. As uh, I once heard from Rav Moshe Weinberger, that he told the story that he was sitting in Chalamoid learning in his dining room, and his little son came in with a bag of pretzels, and he was just gnashing <laughs> on the bag of pretzels. And he looked at his son and he said, what do you have there? So he said, bag of pretzels. I hide it from you and mommy, so that you're taking away all of my stuff. <laughs> and when Rav Weinberger tells over the story, he says that his wife was there, and she looked at him, and she said, now there must be some way of separating the chametz from the child. Right? <laughs> like we want to do beer on the chametz, but not on the child. Yeah? So let's say you found that delicious-looking donut that your child stowed away. Can you eat that chametz now on Pesach? and be yotze the mitzvah of tashbisu. Well, let's think about it. Normally, we have a principle that says mitzvah haba bahavera. You're not allowed to do a mitzvah that comes through an avera. So eating chametz on Pesach is clearly 
in Avera. So the active mitzvah of Tashbisu came at the same time as the eating of the chametz, mitzvah hababa Avera. But let's say it's a passive mitzvah. Is it mitzvah hababa Avera? No. No. I did an Avera. That's one segment, right? And then there's something else separately, right? It happens to be now that I don't have any chametz in my house. Mamela, I'm in that passive state where I was, uh, where I, I don't have any chametz in my house. So there's all sorts of very interesting halachic nafkaminas. I'll give you one last one. Let's say uh, someone steals your mitzvah. Do you know that if somebody steals your mitzvah, they're chayev to pay you? Seriously? Seriously? No, no. They're chayev to pay you. So the Gemara, the Gemara discusses. The Gemara discusses how much in different cases you'd be chayev to pay. But let's say, let's say ten. Yeah. I, I, I would absolutely charge. What do you mean? I'm, that's the most. So that's the halacha. If somebody, if somebody's like you're about to do a mitzvah, somebody comes and steals that mitzvah, they caused you a loss. Okay. So let's say I'm about to do beer chametz, and somebody comes along, grabs my chametz, and throws it into the fire. Do they owe me money? Well, let's see. If it's an active mitzvah. Then they took my but if the but if it's a passive mitzvah, it's just that I have no chametz on Pesach. They didn't do anything. They just threw it in the fire. Other but maybe I should pay them. They did me a service. So this that we spoke about is a very complicated thing. Is having is getting rid of your chametz an active mitzvah or is it just a passive mitzvah not to have any chametz on Pesach? So let's see which side says which. Rashi remembers, remembers said, Bittl. Okay, Taisus argued on him and said, Tashbisu can't mean Bittl, it has to mean Havara. Okay, it has to, it mean, it, according to Rivakiva, Tashbisu means what? Tashbisu means burning the chametz. So let's see. We're going to say, we're going to suggest, the Minchas Chinuch suggests, that Rashi held that Tashbisu is passive. Okay? That the mitzvah is passive, and therefore, as long as when the sixth hour comes, you have no connection to that chametz anymore, you're going to be yotze, the mitzvah of tashbisu. Okay? Because comes along the sixth hour, and now chametz is asr, right? From now until the seventh day of Pesach. So at this point, you had no chametz in your house, so you yotze the mitzvah. Okay? According to Taisvis, he says it's active. It means you have to actively get rid of it. Rashi, if the whole... Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. You, Rashi, are telling me that Tashbisu means Bittal, but how could you actively do Bittal after the sixth hour? What's Rashi going to say? I don't have to do an active mitzvah after the sixth hour as long as I was mevatal beforehand. What happens now after the sixth hour? All I need is to have no chametz. <coughs> so where was Tosis' second kasha? Where was it predicated on? It was predicated on the fact that Tosis was assuming that you have to actively go out and get rid of the chametz. But that's not true according to Rashi. Rashi says you don't have to actively get rid of the chametz. It's just that by the time Pesach comes along, you shouldn't have any chametz anymore. How do you get rid of your chametz according to Rashi? Consider it dust. Consider it dust. 
As long as that happened, you can do it at any point up until the sixth hour. Why? Because once the sixth hour comes, what do you need? I have no more yachas, no more relationship to my chametz. So that answers the second kasha of Tosus, right? But what about the first kasha of Tosus? You'll see why I'm bringing this in. What about Rivakiva? Okay? Because remember, what did Rivakiva say? Rivakiva said Tashbisu means biur. How do you know that Tashbisu means biur according to Rivakiva? Because he says, Bayomarishon doesn't mean on the first day because it's an av malacha. Okay? So for this, there's a Ramban. The Ramban is not on your Marmakamos. For this, there's a Ramban. And the Ramban says that really Tosfos was not understanding the Gemara over there correctly. Because Tashbisu there <coughs> meant both Bittal and Havara. Okay? It means Bittal and burning. How do you know? What are we trying to prove? Let's assume for a second that the word Tashbisu means both, Bittal and Havara. It means Bittal and burning. Okay? The Gemara wants to know when's Bayomarishon. If Tashbisu means burning, so then when is Bayomarishon? Certainly not. It's not on the first day of Pesach. Memela, when is it? Before. The day before. Was Rivikiva coming to tell you that Tashbisu doesn't mean Bittal? Or was he just coming to tell you that Tashbisu doesn't mean, that Bayomarishon doesn't mean on the first day of Pesach? It must mean the day before. But Rashi is saying from the fact that it says Tashbisu velo tivaru, what was the kavana of the Pasuk? Not that it, Rashi agrees that Tashbisu could mean, could mean beer. But what is Tashbisu really? It's Bittal, because otherwise what would the Pasuk have said? Tivaru. So both Rashi and Tosos have two different ways of understanding what Rivakiva said. Okay? So the bottom line, just to sum everything up, is we had a question. What does Tashbisu in the Torah mean? Rashi says Tashbisu means Bittal. Taisus asked two kashas on Rashi. We answered using the Minchas Chinuch. There's two different types of mitzvos. There's active mitzvos and there's passive mitzvos. Tosus understands that Tashbisu is an active mitzvah to destroy your chametz, okay, with all the implications of what an active mitzvah means. Therefore, he assumed that there has to be an activity and that activity can't come after the sixth hour. Rashi says, no, it's a passive mitzvah. Just as long as comes the sixth hour, you don't have any more chametz. I, what about Rivakiva? Two different ways of understanding the Gemara. Taisus understood that Rivakiva meant it's only beer, and the Ramban, and we'll assume that Rashi would use this Ramban. The Ramban says, no, Rivakiva wasn't coming to tell you what Tashbisu means. He was only coming to tell you what Bayomarishon means. Since Tashbisu indicates beer, right, it certainly can't be, or at least partially means beer, it certainly can't mean that it's, um, that it's on the first day of Pesach. Okay. Up until that point is the halacha. Now we'll get into the hashkafa. Everything that I'm going to tell you now is a piece that was written up in a sefer that my Rabbi Rav Zucker published for one of his children's chasnas. It's a very, very special piece. Everything we've just been speaking about, bitl, bedika, biur, why do we go crazy? Why do we go crazy? So there's a fascinating halacha here, and you don't really find it in other places in the Torah. Usually when something is asr, what's the shear that it's asr? A kezayis, a kebetza, right? But on chametz, how much is asr? Afilu amashahu. Even a tiny little bit. So we're going crazy searching in the choros who stuck him in the nooks and crannies of our house. Right? Mamish, every single little thing we're using, toothpicks, we're mamish going crazy. 
everything gets bleached, right? Why? Because chametz afilu b'mashu is aser. First question, why? Why are we so concerned about any tiny little crumb? But that's a kasha, that's a, everyone asks this kasha. But Zucker had a phenomenal connection to this. He said, not only on the negative side are we makbid even a mashahu, but also on the positive side. Where do we see a mashahu on the positive side? Because we have a mitzvah of v'higadata levincha, to tell over the story of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim to our children. How small. How young do the children have to be in order to be Mekayim this mitzvah with them? The answer is, once they can understand, even a very little bit, we have a chiyav to tell them over the story of Sipri Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which means an unbelievable thing. This concept of a mashahu, of a small amount, on the negative side it means we have to look even for the crumbs, but on the positive side it means even the smallest child is involved in the mitzvah of Vigadat Levincha. Okay. Everyone knows, and this is like every Pesach drasha in the world, that the Gemara says that chametz is the Yetzirah. Chametz is connected to the Yetzirah. How does the Yetzirah work? The Yetzirah does not come to us generally and tell us, here's a giant Avera for you to do. It's not generally the way it works. Generally the way the Yetzirah works is the Yetzirah says as follows. I know I'm not going to get you to eat treif on Yom Kippur. Right? You're a good girl, you've been shtaging for a year, I know you're not going to eat treif on Yom Kippur. So here's a small Avera. Everybody does it. This is not even a big one, what do you mean? Everybody does this, right? They get you with a small Avera, and what happens? Avera gaireres Avera. Once you start with the small things, one Avera leads to the next. It's like, for those who know anything about dieting, how does the beginning of breaking the diet start? Small piece, it's just a cookie, it's just a slice of pizza, it's just one, right? I'm just going to have a little bit. Here's my favorite. And girls do this, guys don't do this. Guys are honest, girls are dishonest. A guy sits down with a tray of cake and he eats it. A girl also eats a tray of cake, but I've noticed how you do it. Half slices at a time. Half slices at a time. Like, no, I just want a little piece. Because a half, because a half slice does not have, we'll use Lamdisha terminology, it doesn't have a halal shame slice. So I didn't, break, I didn't break my diet. I promised myself I wasn't going to eat a slice. I didn't eat a full slice. I didn't, I didn't take a full piece. I took half a piece. Half a piece at a time. Lamaisa, 9 by 13, is not a serving size. 9 by 13, even of half, even of half pieces, you still ate 9 by 13. You know how it goes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know that's a shock to you. Yeah? Half pieces. Half, right, that's what I, that's, that's like a, anyway. <laughs> that's a famous rashba when it comes, and it doesn't matter. That's right. It's a, there's, there's these pieces in front of me. It's not that one, it's that one, it's that, but you eat all of them. Yeah, okay. I got that from my dad. So now, and once you eat that first piece, what's the psychology? I broke, I broke my diet. I broke my diet. It, you're not thinking straight when you say that, because what should you really say? Say there. It wasn't the right, it would have, I did the wrong thing, but no, no, no. But now it's like, I feel like, ugh. And if I already feel that way, forget it. So all of a sudden, we went from having a slice of pizza to a pie of pizza. And that's how the Yetzirah gets you. The Yetzirah doesn't come and say, want to have a pie of pizza, even though you're lactose intolerant? Right? It says, 
take the pill, only have a piece. Once I had a piece, I'm still hungry. It's lunch anyway, right? So it's, it's not pizza and a salad. Now, now it's two pieces and a salad. Now it's three pieces and a salad. That's the way it gets you. Which is why we're obligated to search in every single nook and cranny of our home to try to find these small averas. Because the small averas are the ones that get us. Those small averas, they fester. They fester inside us and they have a certain psychology to them. The psychology of the avera is now you're an avarian. Before you were fine, now you're bad. Not only that, but on the positive side too. The Yitzhahara doesn't just tell you, don't worry about it, it's just a small Avera. The Yitzhahara also tells you, don't worry, don't worry about this one too much, because it's just a small mitzvah. And we're supposed to be zar b'mitzvah's kalos, k'mitzvah's kamuros. K'mitzvah's kamuros. We're supposed to be so makbid, even on the smallest mitzvahs, like they're the biggest mitzvahs. Why? Because we know mitzvah gaireris mitzvah. So even the, even the smallest mitzvah has the capacity, once you did that tiny mitzvah, what starts to happen? It starts to roll downhill. I, I feel good about myself. I did the right thing. But again, the Sahara tells you, don't pay attention to small things. We're searching on the negative side for the sore meira. We're trying to say, let's get rid of all of our small averes <coughs> because we know that if they fester, it's like cancer cells. right? If you have cancer cells inside of you, it's going to multiply. It's the nature of cancerous cells. Even if it's a small amount right now, you've got to get rid of it. It's a crazy thing. But on the positive side too, if small has the capacity to make such a big impact, then you have to take your, your big mitzvah so seriously. Which is why on Pesach, I always struggle on Pesach and uh, my wife is in the other room. I hope she's listening in because I'm about to admit something that I don't generally admit. A lot of things on Pesach have nothing to do with halacha. You, you are not obligated to tinfoil your house from top to bottom to make it look like the spaceship that just crashed into the moon. Or the lounge. Just wait, just wait, it's gonna get worse for me. Yeah. And one year, many, many years ago, I was, when I was doing, uh, I don't know if I was doing smicha, or it was, it was after smicha, but I was, I was making fun of certain Pesach minhagim to, uh, to the Rebbe who taught the smicha shir in Landers. Of Kershenbaum. And I said something, and he said, You're right, there's no halachic basis for that, but we don't make fun of the bubbies on Pesach. We don't make fun of, fun of the bubbies on Pesach. I hear it. But the truth of the matter is, it's much more, it's, 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 it's more than that, even. Because of all the places in Shas to discuss the power of Minhagim, right? Which parak in Shas discusses it? It's a parak in Psachim. It's a parak in Masachas Psachim. Called Makum Shanaagim. Why? Because a minig is a very small thing. A minig is a very small thing, but a minig is your minig. It's your minig. And once it's your minig, we can't be mezalzal in small things. So everybody has their minhagim. You know, for this year, for those of you that are Shana Aleph, I'm sure that when you were in shul on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, it might have been a little jarring for you. What was jarring? What was jarring? It's not my, it's not my tunes, right? Everyone, everyone says that. They're like, it was a nice davening, but I miss my tunes, right? 
And you always look at the guys in yeshiva that say that to you, and you're like, that was a nicer davening than any davening you've had in your entire life. What are you talking about? The singing, the dancing, the ruach, the kavana. That was awesome. Yeah, but in my shul we sing, and here they did like a lively nigga. And I'm like, but they're right. Because a minig, it's, it's yours. You can't be mezalzal in small things. A minig is not a mitzvah. What was that? Mizalzal. Mizalzal means to like to embarrass, to say it's like little, to say oh. it's like a nothing. You can't be mizalzal in a minog, because a minog is very chashuv. A minog is you, and that's why we say minog Yisrael Torah. That the minog of Klal Yisrael it becomes a chelik and Torah, because by us small things have very big meanings. Why is it dafka on Pesach that every small child needs to be told the story of Sipri Yisus Mitzrayim? Because this is exactly the machlokas between Paro and the Jews. What does Paro say? Paro says, kill all the children. They have no value to us. Children by Paro have no value. What do we say? Zeha katan gadol Treat the children with respect, with dignity, because one day that child is going to become a gadol. See, Mitzrayim, they're totally functional. If Mitzrayim has to choose between Ketanim and Gedolim, they're going to choose Gedolim. Because by Mitzrayim, they're worried about function. But by us, we're always worried about continuity. Mm-hmm. So a Katan is just a great big ball of potential. So the Machlokas that we have with Paro, and specifically on Pesach, we say the littlest child has to be part of our Seder. And that's why so many people have the Minag to get toys at the Seder table, to keep the children involved. Everything is about keeping the children involved, right? So every year at the Seder, we're coming up with new things to try to keep our children involved. So one year, um, when I was leading the Seder, I did the Seder as Paro. I narrated the story as Paro. Why? Because that's a great way of keeping the kids involved. They were fighting with me the whole time. Everything that they were saying, I said, no, that's not how it happened. And I said it, Kilu, the way Paro said it, right? Last year, I did the Seder as Adam Arishon. If Adam Arishon never died, right? Telling the story from the beginning of time. This year, I don't see any of my children around. Did they leave? This year. Kids aren't here, right? So this year, we're doing the Seder. My wife and I are doing it together as Aaron and Miriam. Trying to come up with ways of keeping the kids involved, right? And we're trying to make the story come alive for the kids. Everything is focused on the kids. Why Dafki here? Is it so focused on the kids? The answer is because it goes connected everything that Paro said. Paro says, forget about the children. Claudia is all about the children. Another example of this. You know, the halacha is that you're only allowed to make matzah from something that could become a chametz. Wouldn't it be exactly the opposite? Imagine, somebody tells you, the main thing on Pesach is not to have any chametz. Go have matzah. Go have matzah. Great, what do I make matzah out of? Specifically something that could become chametz. Doesn't make any sense. It should be exactly the opposite, right? Let's make, let's all be svardim, right? Because anyway, we know svardim are uh, more authentic Jews, right? Let's all be svardim. Let's all be svardim. So, and, and, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all be Svardim. And, the, and the, Svardim have, the Svardim have rice matzah, right? Let's have rice matzah. Because why would that be perfect? Because no matter what, no matter how long I bake it, it's never going to become chametz. 
So that would be, well, can you imagine the chumra? Wouldn't that be, I got mine from pure rice, that it could never even have a shemetz of chametz. I watched my rice to make sure there was no chametz, right? You can make the greatest uh, chumras out of this. And that's not matzah. Why? Because what we want is the bread to stay small. We want it to remain in its unleavened state. We take something that dafka could become big, and we value it when it's not big. See, the problem with rice is it can never become big. Rice can never leaven. It can never expand. It doesn't have that expansive quality. So since it doesn't have that expansive quality, we can't really value it. What we're trying to say is the contrast. You, Paro, you only value those things that are big. We specifically value those things that are small. That's what it means. Ushmartem etza matzos. You have to watch. You have to watch carefully your matzos. We have to watch. You have to watch that they don't become leaven, that they don't become big. Because on Pesach, everything is about what's small. And even Klal Yisrael was on the 49th level of Tumah. What separated us from the 50th level? A very small amount is what separated us. So even the small amount, we have to give such hashivas to that which is small. Because every, it was mamish about to fall apart. 50th level of Tumah and you're done. So we tend to think to ourselves, the 49, 49, not 50. 49th level of Tumah meant we stayed there one more minute, we were there. What separated us from the 50th level? This much. This much. The separation was not 49 and then the 50th level of Tumah is, you know, 20 yards away. 50th level of Tumah was right there. And for this reason, we were given the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh while we were still in Mitzrayim. Why didn't we get the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh after Mitzrayim? Because Kiddush HaChodesh is all about what? It's sanctifying when the moon is so small, when there's mamish nothing left. It's valuing that which is minuscule. That's dafka. When does a Jew come and say there's, there's sanctity here? When does a Jew come and recognize there's Kedusha? We recognize the Kedusha of the tiny, of the minuscule. And in order for us to leave Mitzrayim, we needed to know that. Because, it, because the whole problem is we adopted an Egyptian culture. Adopting an Egyptian culture means what? We think big. Everything today, if you ever notice, today in the world, what does everyone talk about? Everyone talks about leadership. How do we create the next generation of leaders? What's the problem? If you actually create the next generation of leaders, you're going to fail miserably. Why? Because anyone who's not a leader is going to feel like I'm a loser. It, it, by us, we have to value the smallest contribution. In Klai Yisrael, we don't only look at the tzaddikim and say only the tzaddikim have a role. Every single Jew has a role. Even the smallest little child has a role to play. And that's why everyone comes to Rebekiva on the night of the Seder. In the Haggadah, what do we see? Where do we find everybody? In Bnei Brak. By who? By Rebekiva. Why Dafka Rebekiva? So we know that Rebekiva, his neshama was a Gilgal of Yaakov Avinu. Because Rebekiva was Rebekiva ben Yosef. And Yaakov also had a son whose name was Yosef. So there's a deep connection between Rebekiva and between Yosef and Tzadik. I'm sorry, but there's a deep, deep connection between Rebekiva and Yaakov Avinu, and Yosef Atzadik. Let's just talk about Yaakov for a second. What is Yaakov? Yaakov is made up of the letters Yud, Akev. Yud is the smallest letter. Akev is the lowest part of the body. Yaakov has an adversary. Who's the adversary of Yaakov Avinu? Esav. So when Yaakov goes back for Pachim Ketan, and when he goes back for the small jugs, who does he encounter? He encounters Esau. Because Esau says, why are you going for something that's small? Right? You should be focused on that which is big. 
So there, when he goes looking for something that's small, that's Dafka where he, fight, where he finds the Malch of Esav. And we know that the Shach says that that pach, that little jug that he went back for, ends up being what? The pach shemen of Hanukkah. And from that small little jug, eight days are lit. Zehakaton gadol If you value that which is small, you're going to end up getting that which is big. Now, Esav only values that which is big. Why? What does Esav say? Esav famously says, when he meets Yaakov Avinu, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. What does Yaakov Avinu say? Yeshli Kol. Now, who had more? Yaakov or Esav? Yaakov had more. Why? Because Esav only had that which is big. Yeshli Rav, I have big things. Not just I have a lot, I have big things. What does Yaakov Avinu say? I have everything. Why everything? Because you have that which is big, I also have big. But the difference between you and me is I also have small. That's why Yaakov Vinu is referred to as a katan. Esav was supposed to be the balavoda in the Beis HaMikdash. If Yaakov would never have taken the Bechayra from Esav, so who would have been running the Beis HaMikdash? Esav would have been running the Beis HaMikdash. But why did Yaakov Vinu have to take away the Beis HaMikdash, the Avedis HaMikdash from, Yaakov, from Esav? Because Esav only values that which is big. And we know that in the Mikdash, what do you have? You have the Karben Mincha. Yeah? The carbon mincha is just a flower offering. It's a very small offering. And the Ani, who brings the, the carbon mincha, it's like he was makriv himself. So that's what it means. In the base of Mikdash, it doesn't matter how big, how much you brought, as long as your heart was in the right place. So Esau would never have understood that. Why? Because Esau was all about valuing that which is big. So big carbonos, Esau would have thought were as amazing. But small carbonos, like the carbon mincha that the Ani brings, he would never have known how to value that. The Mela Esau needs to be taken away from the Mechara so that Yaakov Vinu could run the Beis HaMikdash. And that's why Vayikra begins with a small Aleph. Because Vayikra is all about valuing that which is small. Now, Rav Akiva was the Gilgal of Yaakov Avinu. If Rav Akiva is the Gilgal of Yaakov Avinu, so then what's Rav Akiva going to value? He's going to value that which is small. Like, for example, could you imagine what type of person it would take to walk by a rock and see one small drop of water over and over again, creating a dent in that rock? Where did Rav Akiva get the vision to be able to see the impact of one small drop of water? Only because he was the Gilgal of Yaakov Avinu and he knew how to value small things. Not only that, but Rav Akiva, because he valued small things, he had an experience where as a 40-year-old, he started to learn Torah. Who did Rav Akiva start to learn Torah with? In a classroom full of children. So who did Rav Akiva value? Why was it appropriate for everybody to go to him in Bnei Brak and to learn Torah by him? Because he was the one who understood the value of small things. He spent his time with small children, starting again. And this answers, this answers a Gemara that... Of course, it had to be Rav Akiva that said this Gemara. There's a Brisa that they said about Rav Akiva that in his time he never told people to leave the base Medrash. Only two times a year he told people to leave the base Medrash. When? Pesach, Erev Pesach, and Erev Yom Kippur. Erev Yom Kippur, why? So that they could, so that they could eat. And Erev Pesach, so that the children could take a nap, so they could be up for the Seder. And of course, it would be Rav Akiva that would be the one to say... Let's get all the kids to sleep because they are the key of the Seder. Being machshav, the small, doing that bedika, 
right? Making sure that you're totally removed, even from the smallest amount of chametz on the sor meirah and on the asay tov, having value for every single child. And think about the chinuch lesson that Rav Akiva was imparting to us. Rav Akiva was saying, if you will value the children, really value them when they're young, what will happen when they're older? When they're older, it will be amazing because they'll grow up with think, they'll grow up with dignity and respect. So of course, if we take it all the way back, so we had a machlokas between Rashi and Tosus, what does Tashbisu mean? And who's everybody fighting over? They're fighting over a Vakiva. Tosus says, what are, you, what are you talking about, Rashi? How could you say Tashbisu means bitl when Ravakiva said Tashbisu means biur? And Rashi says, Ravakiva never said Tashbisu means biur. He, mean, he meant to say it also means biur. But of course it also means bitl. But of course they're fighting over Ravakiva's opinion. Why? Because it's Rav Akiva's opinion on Pesach that's so critical to us. Because Rav Akiva tells us, be machshiv that which is small. Today, in today's chinuch, we spend so much time talking about at-risk kids. But very few people are paying attention to kids who are at risk for being at risk. Everyone today is creating programming for at-risk kids. And Baruch Hashem, they need it. And we have a responsibility as a community to create that programming. But could you imagine what it would look like if we weren't doing triage? If instead of getting to a kid when they're 15, 16, 17 years old, if we got to a kid when they were 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 years old? These kids are at risk for being at risk. So how do we deal with the kids who are at risk for being at risk? How can we service those kids? So we can make amazing programs for those kids. And programs like that exist. There's a program in the five towns called TOVA stands for Torah Viable Alternatives, where they have mentoring programs for at-risk kids, and even for kids that are at risk for being at risk. But not all of us are going to be able to involve ourselves or create such programs. So what can we do? So I think the answer to us is, is very impactful, very important, and very necessary for us to hear. The answer is how you treat your child when they're old enough to understand, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, these kids, that kid at 16, 17 years old, they didn't get there accidentally. They got there because they weren't respected as children. Kids know naturally. Young ages, they know a tremendous amount. They know the difference between the teachers that love them and the teachers that don't. They know the difference. They know the difference between the teachers that respect them and the teachers that don't. When we sometimes look at teachers who are really railing on their classes, especially at young ages, in the name of discipline, in the name of classroom management. Somehow, if those teachers were teaching classrooms where they were 16 and 17 years old, they wouldn't do that anymore. Why? Because it would be beneath their dignity to teach that way. So why do you get to do it to a third grade class? Why don't they deserve respect? There's a rabbi in Yeshiva Dar Unfortunately, his wife just passed away. It was yesterday. But he was my brother's rabbi when he was in second grade. A very, very special man. His name is Rabbi Saldinger. Rabbi Saldinger is the sweetest Rebbe in the entire world. Unfortunately, he was never Zaycha to have children. So because of that, I don't know, because of that, that's not fair for me to say, but definitely he's somebody who treats every child with respect and he loves every child so much because each one of them is his children. My brother, when he had his third child, my brother and the second grade Rebbe were very close. The second grade Rebbe really gave something special to my brother. Without getting into the details, that year my brother was very sick, and his Rebbe really took extra special care of him. And when he had his third child, so he didn't have anyone to name after, so he called Rabbi Saldinger and he said, Rebbe, 
I know you never had the capacity to name a child, so this one's for you. And my third nephew, Yeshaya Yosef, is named after Rabbi Swaldinger's father. Rabbi Swaldinger named the baby. Very, very special Rebbe. Now, one of the things that makes Rabbi Swaldinger so special, and there are many things, but one of the things that makes him so special is the way that he disciplines children. Because he's teaching second grade. And, you know, like many people, it's hard to maintain classroom, classroom management. You have to maintain a certain decorum in the classroom. So when a kid starts acting out, he has phrases, go-to phrases that he uses. He goes, if you don't start behaving, I'm going to... And the kids say, dip you in chocolate and eat you all up. And he has like all the kids say it at once. <laughs> and, and he has like all these like cute... And he goes, if you don't start behaving, I'm going to send you to... And all these little second graders go... Alba Island for in perpetuity. He teaches teaches them in the beginning of the year all these like the cutest, warmest, most wonderful things to say. What's the pshat? He values them as katanim. He values them as children. And if you meet someone who had Rabbi Solinger, 10 years later, they still, you had Rabbi Solinger, they go, yeah, that was awesome. They're 17 years old. Why are they still talking about their second grade Rebbe that way? What's the pshat? Because that was like, was so sweet, he was so kind, he treated us with such respect. There's another Rebbe in Darche, his name is Rabbi Potash. He's a pre-1A Rebbe, sometimes first grade Rebbe, but I think a pre-1A Rebbe. Every single summer, the highlight of my day, my wife knows this, I've told this story many, many times before, the highlight of my day was watching Rabbi Potash daven with these five, six-year-old kids. You know what he did? He had a giant stereo in the room, and he turned on music, so like uh, Matovu was ma 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 Matovu oh Yaakov and you know what davening is the whole class is dancing and singing that's the whole class and they make a train and like every kid is like going around the room it's amazing how do you teach how do you teach children like that what's the pshat the pshat is if you really respect Ketanim, if you respect on the positive side what are those kids going to be they're going to remember the gishmak they had when they were younger they're going to daven when they're older. The problem is so many of us are told, now put your finger on the place and sit still, right, for hours and hours on end, which has never been in the history of the world before. Who was able to sit for that long? It's a crazy thing. But a Rebbe who knows how to value small things, za'akot and gadoliyya. So for us, as we head into Pesach now, on the Surmeirah, we just did a lot of Surmeirah. Just a lot of Surmeirah. We got rid of all the chametz in the house, every little nook and cranny. We searched that there should be nothing that could become something bigger. Avera, gareras, avera. But we have to make sure to double down on the positive also. To find the Yaakov Avinu, to find the Rivakiva, those people that value small things and that know how to, that just like a small Avera can send you one way, a small mitzvah could send you the other way, and to value the small things in our life. <coughs> I was asked to speak on the topic of the recent terrorist event that occurred in Poway, San Diego. And this is the second time this year, which is a crazy thing to think about. It was the second time this year that Klal Yisrael had suffered a tragedy like this. They had in Pittsburgh earlier in the year. And now we had in a Chabad shul in in Poway, so what's our response? How should a Jew respond to this? How should a Jew understand these things? So start off with one basic question, but it's a, it's a difficult question. 
Medrash and Bereshis Rabbah tells us how did HaKadosh Baruch Hu create the light that fills the world? So the Medrash says that first HaKadosh Baruch Hu clothed himself Kaviachal in a garment and then the light shone through that garment. And the Medrash concludes just as I learned this concept in a whisper so too I have passed it on to you in a whisper. Okay? So there's a couple of questions on this Medrash. First of all, the question of the Medrash was how did HaKadosh Baruch Hu create the light? But the Medrash's response is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu conceals himself. So if the question is how do you create the light, talk about the light, don't talk about the concealment. That's the first question. And the second question of the Medrash is what does it mean that just as he learned this in a whisper, so too he taught it in a whisper. What does that mean to teach these things in a whisper? When you speak to somebody, if you're whispering, so then they can't hear you, unless you're very close to them. So what does it mean? What's the deeper message of the concept of these things being taught in a whisper? Everything that happens in our lives is always deeply connected to the spirituality of the time that we're in. So in order for us to understand these things, I think it would be helpful for us to look at what's the idea of Sfira Saomer, and to try in a deep way to understand the message that's being taught to us, especially for the things that we're going through right now as a nation. When we look at the mitzvah of Sfira Saomer, it comes in a very interesting way. Psukim in Vayikra say as follows, Bechodesh Harishon in the first month, Asar Lachodesh in the fourteenth day, Bein Arabayim Pesach LaHashem. You should bring the carbon Pesach on the fourteenth of Nisan. Uvechamisha Asar Yom on the fifteenth Lachodesh Azeh of this month, Chagam Matzos LaHashem. That'll be Pesach. And Shivas Yamim Matzos Tochelu. Seven days you eat Matzah. Bayom Harishon Mikra Kodesh Yelachem Kol Malach Asavodal Lo Taasu. You're not allowed to do any Malacha on Pesach. And these are the carbon that you have to bring to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, that's Pesach. Okay? The Pesach continues and it says, Speak to Klal Yisrael and say to them, When you will come to Eretz Yisrael, the land that I will give you, there's a whole process of waving the Karbana Omer. And when do you do that? Mimacharas HaShabbos. Mimacharas HaShabbos is when you bring the Karbana Omer. Girls, what day is Mimacharas HaShabbos? That's the day after Pesach. Okay, so how does it go? It goes like this. On the 14th, you bring the carbon Pesach. On the 15th, it's Pesach. And on the 16th, you bring, the carbon Omer. What's strange? If you were writing the Torah, how would you have written this? Think about what the Torah says. On the 14th, you bring the carbon Pesach. On the 15th, it's Pesach. Then seven days, you should eat matzah. Don't do any malacha. These are the carbon you bring on Pesach. The day after Pesach, we have the carbon Omer. 
there's something over, there's something out of order here. If you were writing the Torah, how would you have written it? On the 14th, you bring the carbon Pesach. On the 15th is Pesach. On the 16th is the carbon Omer. Then talk about Shivas Yamim, Matzas Tochelu. Why did the Torah go out of order over here? Okay. Before we answer these questions, start off with a basic question. How would you describe the condition of the world? Would you describe the condition of the world as one of suffering? Or would you describe the condition of the world as one of hope? It's a fundamental question. When you think about the world, when you think about your life, should you think about it as, I'm hopeful, or should you think about it as, what it means to be alive is a state of eternal suffering? Now this is a very important question. Because the truth of the matter is that this world seems to be, it appears to be, a state of eternal suffering. And that sounds very bleak, but it's also very true. Because if you think about it, the moment you're born, what, what process did you start? Dying. You started to die. Because life needs to be sustained. So even if we're not talking about tragedy, which we'll get to in a minute, the condition of a human being is one of suffering. So if you don't eat, you die. So you need to work in order to eat. And working is suffering, because working is pain. right? Because everything that you're going to be involved in in work is going to involve a certain amount of pain. Because all production in our world requires pain. right? That's why Chava had the curse that if she wants to produce a child, now it's going to have pain involved. Right? And if Adam wants to eat from the land, it's going to involve pain. He's going to require suffering in order to work. So on a baseline level, when you look at the world, the world tells you, you are in a state of suffering. And there's no escaping that suffering. And every single day that, you're, that you wake up in the morning, what you're basically looking forward to that day is a day of suffering. Even being in this year right now is suffering. I don't... I don't know if you frame it that way. <laughs> I kind of hope you don't, right? But, the, but it is. There's a certain amount of suffering because you have to use your mental acuity in order to understand the concepts that we're talking about over here. And so that requires a certain amount of concentration. And concentration can be draining. Think about the days when you've put in a really hard day of work here. Right? So at the end of the day, how did you feel? Maybe you <coughs> felt accomplished, but you probably also felt exhausted. Well, why did you feel so exhausted? Because it requires a certain amount of energy. The energy that you're exerting is because you're suffering. The nature of the world is friction. So every time there's friction, there's suffering. But that's not even getting to the big stuff. That's just your everyday run-of-the-mill stuff. And then there's tragedy. I lost my job, right? So as long as you had a job, you were suffering, but at least there was a payoff. But now you lost your job, and now what happens to your children? And think about all of the psychological energy that you're going to expend being anxious about how am I going to support my family, right? Or think about the, the pain that it might take to have to accept tzedakah from somebody. That's a massive amount of pain. But even that pain is, is not massive amounts of pain because at least within that pain, there's the possibility that I'll get a job. But what happens if chas v'shalom, we have illness? And think about the amount of suffering that is involved in illness. Not only the person that's ill, but think about the psychological suffering that's occurring around the person that's ill. Think about what it's like for their parents or for their children, for their spouses, for their siblings, right? There's a massive amount of suffering that goes on. 
Well, well, in a certain way it is, right? So if you think about, if you think about uh, let's say organizations like High Lifeline, right? So High Lifeline is basically an organization that says we're gonna help you in times of suffering and who are we gonna help? So we're not just gonna help the person that needs to get to the hospital by providing transportation, right? But we're gonna provide um, you know, support for the siblings. And even when people pass away, there's a massive, massive amount of suffering that's left over, right? So they had bereavement weekends for, for children, uh, for siblings that lost their siblings and for parents that lost their children, right? There's a massive amount of suffering that occurs. But even that, right, within that illness, that's not, that's not the suffering of death, right? And the suffering of death, if you've ever seen someone, and I hope that you haven't, but if you ever see someone go down that path of death, there's a massive amount of suffering when you're just fo focusing on the person that's dying. There's a massive amount of tragedy there. So when you look at the, when, when you look at the world, right, and you say the condition of life is one of suffering, it's not incorrect. It's not incorrect to say that the condition of life is suffering. So how could somebody come to us and tell us that the condition of the world is one of hope? Where would they get off saying that? I mean, it would come from a perspective of Gatuna only means suicide, but you see suffering with hope. Right. But where do you know, where, where does hope come from? Right? In other words, is hope just this thing that I, that I imagine to, to cope with the suffering? Because I think that's what people with suffering would tell you. Wait, you said would, the world is a condition of hope. Well, I'm, I'm arguing that that's maybe another way of looking at it. Okay. Right? And so hope means that, yes, there's suffering, but there's also hope. Well, we were given a chance. Are we? Today you were given a chance? And to suffer? I was just born. I, I didn't ask. Yeah, right. In <laughs> fact, the mission of Avo says you were born against your will. Against your will and given against your will. So you were. So who? So you were given the ability to do things. Sure. And all the things that you're going to do, or at least many or, or most of the things that you're going to do in any given day, are going to be to ameliorate the suffering that you have with this existence. It's all on what you, you perceive the world as. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's why I'm framing it as not the way, but as one of two ways of looking at it, right? But there's, there's no question that a person who says life is suffering is not wrong. There's certainly a lot of truth to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be bothering you so much. Yeah? But we, we, look to, we, we see hope because we don't just believe that life is life. We don't think that it's just life is that who you're done. We believe life, and then there's more, and there's more within the life that we're living that isn't finite. We, like, people who suffer see a finite world and say, I suffer, that's it. There's the end. The hope that's there for us is we see there's a life I'm suffering. What for? Like there's something behind the okay. curtains playing the scenes that okay. can be hope. So then there's another way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, of course, every single moment of my life is going to require suffering. But the reason that there's hope is not, and this is very important and it's very subtle, hope is not a coping mechanism to suffering. But, and here's the theory, but hope came before suffering. Now that, at first glance, doesn't seem to make any sense. Because how could I be hopeful about something that hasn't gone wrong? Right? When are we hopeful? We're hopeful when something is potentially going wrong. Right? So, right, but that means something could go wrong. Right, well that's the point, right? But I, the only reason I think that is because the condition of the world is suffering. But that's hope as an antidote. Right? So in other words, it's like I really want to get into this seminary. Right? I'm really hopeful that I will. Well, why are you hopeful? because there's potential suffering involved. So that's hope as an antidote to suffering, right? But I'm going to argue that hope actually comes before suffering. That before there was suffering, there was hope. 
Now, what does that mean? Because how could you be hopeful before there's suffering? <coughs> well, it depends on how you frame the suffering. Is suffering purposeful? Is there a reason for my suffering? And before the suffering ever occurred, there was purpose, there was a plan. And embedded in that plan, there was a hope. And it's not that hope is an antidote to suffering. This is a deep idea. It's not that I suffer and then there's hope. But I hope when there's suffering because the hope came before the suffering. And the reason why hope works when I'm suffering, I'll say it again, don't worry. The reason why hope works when I suffer is because hope came before the suffering. So again, there's, I'm suffering, but I'm hopeful that I'll suffer less today right, than I did yesterday. Right? Or there's a potential tragedy, so I gotta, I gotta have hope. Right? But that's hope just as a response. Okay? Or, hope is way before suffering. Hope occurs way before suffering. The suffering is purposeful. The suffering is part of a plan. The hope, before the suffering ever occurred, is there was something called hope. And the reason why hope is a really good antidote to suffering is because it came before the suffering. And so if the refuah comes before the makkah, so then when the makkah comes, I have the refuah. But it's not that I only have a refuah because there's a makkah. I have the refuah, period. Now there's a makkah. Well, that's good because I have a refuah. So it's like I have hope. Well, that's good. And now if they're suffering... I'll be able to employ that hope as an antidote to suffering. But my hope is not because I have suffering. My hope is because I have hope. So it's a very different way of looking at it. Does that make sense? Not yet? One more time. You have hope without suffering. I have hope. You don't need suffering hope. Right. And now if I, one second, and now if I suffer, I'll have hope. Because you already had it. Because I already had it. And I couldn't employ hope if I never had it to begin with. So some people think that hope is born out of suffering. Hope is not born out of suffering, according to this way of looking at it. Hope is the natural condition that you have. There's something about you that is deeply hopeful. And then if you have suffering in your life, it's okay. You can manage it. How, will, how do you manage it? Because I have hope. So hope wasn't born as an antidote to suffering. A person, it lives in a state of hope. And then because <coughs> suffering is real, we have ways of dealing with suffering. And those are two very different models. So let's go back and look at our two models for a second. In the first model, we said every single moment that you're alive, you're suffering. Right? You're expending energy all the time in order to avoid suffering. And tragic things you know are going to happen to you in your lives. Right? We're just so foolish right? until, we get, until we suffer, right? real suffering, until we get to like tragedy. <laughs> Most people are walking through life going, well, somebody's going to suffer, but it's not going to be me. And then when it happens, they're like... Well, that wasn't supposed to happen. But of course, every one of us in this room knows that we're going to suffer. And if we haven't suffered yet, it's only by luck of the draw. right? And it's only because we're at an age where we're looking at people and we're going, I can't believe they had to suffer so young. Right? But really, we're living in this magical world where we think we're never going to suffer. And that's not true. You're going to suffer. And, you're going, and, and, and tragic things are going to happen in your life. So some people say, okay, so life is suffering and I have to develop coping mechanisms to deal with that suffering. Or... Alternatively, we build organizations like High Lifeline because we have hope, not because we have suffering. And then when people suffer, we have some place for them to go. 
Now you'll say, well, we only have high lifeline because they're suffering. Well, why do we have high lifeline? Why do we have any of these organizations? Why can't a person just say, okay, I'm suffering and that's it? What is it about us as a community that says when these things happen, we should band together for each other? Well, the only reason we had that is because we have hope. So there's something about us, there's something about the human condition, it's called the soul, that tells you that all of this suffering is meaningful. All of it is purposeful. And there's something about our suffering that demands to know why. And we're not okay with what appears to be unjust <coughs> suffering. And here's the thing about unjust suffering. When it happens, we call out to the one that's bringing the suffering to begin with. So people will say the following, I don't understand how God could do this. Exactly. But isn't that the most incredible statement of belief in God? Because if, you, if, you, if your condition is hope, doesn't that make sense, right? If your condition is one of hope, then when suffering occurs and, and it appears to be unjust, right? Like when you have somebody who tragically dies at a young age or in a horrific fashion, right? So then what, what do we do? We call out and we go, that's not right. Well, who told you that it was supposed to be right? Life is suffering. <coughs> well, what's the answer to that? Well, the reason that you say that it's supposed to be right is because you had hope to begin with. Do you understand? So when the unjust suffering happens, what's our reaction to that? That's not right. And that's a good reaction. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, the difference is everything, right? Because if, you, if, you're, if you're living in a world of suffering, so then your view on life is naturally <coughs> going to be pessimistic. And whenever you meet anybody, what are you going to think? You're going to think the worst possible thing. Because life has taught you that life is suffering. So imagine what it would be like for somebody who has that worldview to walk into Tomer Devorah on day one. Well, she's going to look around and she's going to say, I don't, I'm not going to be friends with these people, right? And she's, she's not wrong because inevitably this year you're going to have some fights, right? As I imagine some of you may have already had. Uh, roommate issues, right? The temperature of a room, right? Oh my God. I, by the way, I say, I say that in any seminary that I teach at, I say the temperature of a room, and you see all the girls going. The lights or the noise in a room. Inevitably, there are going to be shirim that you don't like. Right? So there's going, to be, there's going to be conditions of suffering over the course of the year, right? And so a person who walks in with a, with a perspective of suffering, what's their, what's their response going to be when they walk in on day one to anything? They're going to say, it's probably going to involve suffering. And they're not wrong, right? And yet, when you walked in this year, I hope, right? Perhaps you walked in not with an optimistic worldview, because optimism is just like, I'm a positive thinker, right? Hope is much, much deeper than that, right? Hope is, I'm, I'm not looking at the suffering that's going, to, that's going to be involved in this year. And it's not because you're ignoring the suffering, but because it's not the way you see the world. right? So there's something about you that came here this year and said, I'm deeply hopeful that this year is going to be transformative. Well, where did that come from? And by the way, you know exactly who you are if you're that type of person. Right? If you were the type of person who was sitting there in high school going, I'm just waiting till I go to Israel. Right? 
And it's not something that you necessarily said out loud. Maybe you didn't even say it to your closest friends because you were embarrassed to say it. But deep in your heart, you knew about yourself. Yeah, I'm going to go to Israel and I'm really going to turn it on. It's going to be a transformative year. Well, where did that hope come from? There's something about our design that tells us that there's what to be hopeful for, that we can live in a world that has a better tomorrow, that we live in a world that ameliorates suffering. Right? Not because we need to get rid of it because we can't take it, but because it's purposeful, so we have to access it. Right? So all of a sudden, suffering takes on meaning to us. So this is one of my favorite ideas that I ever heard. It's an idea from Rav Soloveitchik. And he says, Nar hayisi I was young and I was old and I never saw a tzaddik go hungry and his children didn't have bread to eat. And Rosalovichik asks, well, how could that be? What do you mean? You never saw the righteous people suffer? So he said, no, you're misreading the Pasuk. Nar hayisi, I was young. Vegam zakanti, and I was old. Velora isi, and I never stood by and watched as a tzaddik went hungry and didn't have bread to feed his children. Well, why, what's the value of saying that? The value of saying is, I won't be a person who stands by and watches suffering. Well, why not? Because it's not the worldview that a Jew has. The worldview that a Jew has is that suffering is a call to action. And every single one of us deeply knows that. We know that suffering is a call to action. So when we see somebody suffering, what's our natural response? Even if we're not suffering, but what's our natural response to them? I want to help. So it's the most amazing thing. As a community, when these things occur, our response is, is off the charts. So for example, when Ari Fold, Hashem Yikom Damo, was murdered this year, after like, I think it was maybe after the week of Shiva, maybe a couple days later, they had raised well over a million dollars to support his family from people from all over the world. Well, how, how did that happen? And what's the answer? The answer is because we are a people of hope, right? It's not by accident that the national anthem of the state of Israel is Hatikva. It's because we're, we're a people that was built on hope. Well, people ask the question, well, how have Jews survived throughout the millennia? Well, the answer is very simple. If we would have had a perspective of suffering, we never would have survived. But every single time we've suffered, we've done incredible things with the suffering. So when you look at the Spanish Inquisition, it was a terrible time, but some of the greatest works that we have came from those times, right? We were exiled to Bavel, we created Shas Bavli. Right? So any time that there's been suffering, Jews have always responded with purpose. Does that make sense? Well, the reason we do that is because we're deeply hopeful. So after the Holocaust, everybody said it was over. Nobody could possibly rebuild after this. And the Gedolim came ahead and said, okay, but we're going to rebuild. And Rav Aaron Cutler started Lakewood, and Rav Moshe Feinstein was in New York, and Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky was in Torah Vadas, and the Gedolim rebuilt world Jewry, and now we're flourishing. And thousands upon thousands of people are learning in yeshivas, and, and people are moving to Eretz Yisrael, and people are coming to seminary for the year. And if you would have told our great-grandparents... Right? If you would have told them that this, if you would have gone back to a Jew in 1939 and 1940 in Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia, and you would have told them that this, that you, that you, don't worry, your grandchildren and great grandchildren will be sitting and learning in Yerushalayim, and that they'll not only be free to learn, but that their parents are going to have the, the capability of sending them for the year to just focus on sitting and learning, so they could be, you know, impactful Jewish mothers. What would your great grandparents have said? Well, I wonder what they would have said, right? Because maybe people who are in a state of suffering would have said that. 
Right? But I wonder if our great-grandparents were hopeful enough to be able to imagine such a future, and maybe that's how they did it. What was that? Yeah, for sure. Well, why did they dive in for it? Because they were hopeful. Right? They sort of would believe it. Well, I don't know if they would or they wouldn't, but I'd like to believe that they would. Right? Because if you think about it, right, we've, still, we've, been, we've been hopeful that the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt. Right? Well, how do we know that it's going to happen? Well, if you look at the Animamim, what does the Animamim say? Even though Mashiach hasn't come yet, and even though he tarries, I'm waiting for him. Well, why would you wait for someone for so long? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Only if you really believe that he's going to come. But other than that, you would never, if, you would never wait <laughs> if you were waiting for a date and he didn't show up for thousands of years. <laughs> You would never tell your kids, right? You married somebody else, but like, I'm still waiting for that date. So every night I go to that hotel lobby at 8 o'clock, just maybe. And now you're like a bubby and you're in your, you know, you're in your early 90s and you pull in your great-grandchild and you say to your great-grandchild, listen, you know that at 8 o'clock every night I go to the Leonardo Hotel because I'm still waiting for that shidduch day. And now I, I tell you it's your turn to wait. Because maybe his children will show up, you know, like, okay, Safta needs to go to a home now, you know, like, that's, uh, and that's what, it's, and that's exactly what we do, right? Every single generation tells the next one that it doesn't matter in how many generations they rise up against us, just hang in there, because it's coming. Well, at some point you would say it's not coming anymore, right? And that's what they, that's what they try to do, the conservative and reform movement, they tried to take Mashiach out. Because they said, it's Narshkat already. And as a result, their movements have suffered tremendously because when you remove hope, all you're left with is suffering. And we're exactly the opposite. So let's go back just for a second to these psukim because I think they're going to be very illuminating here. What comes first? Redemption or the Karban Omer? Well, the Karban Omer represents suffering, right? It's when you come into Eretz Yisrael. And now you actually have to build the land. And there's, there's a lot of work involved in building the land. And then you come with your, you come with your carbon <coughs> omer, you come with, your, with your, your, you know, your, bare, your bare bones, and you say, okay, I'm giving this to God. That required a massive amount of suffering, and we left the midbar. Right? And the omer represents the suffering of this world. And at the same time, and, and that's, not, that's not the same as Pesach. That's not the same as redemption. Pesach, is, it's very clear that they're two very different sets of sukkim, Right? So first we start off with, you know, on the 14th you bring the carbon Pesach, and on the 15th you have Pesach, and then you have your seven days of Pesach that you eat matzahs. And then only afterwards, we go back and we talk about the Omer, because they're two very th- different things, right? Yes and no. Because the Omer happens in the context of redemption. Do you understand? And that frames how you come into Eretz Yisrael. Right? If you come into Eretz Yisrael and all you have is the suffering, well, it's true that suffering and freedom are two separate motifs. But the suffering happens in the context of the redemption of Pesach. So you're redeemed from Mitzrayim and you lead this idyllic life in the Midbar and you're totally redeemed. And then only afterwards do you have the suffering. And the reason that you have that suffering is because now when you're ingrained with the notion of redemption, when you're ingrained with the notion of hope, then how you engage suffering is totally different. And so while they are two separate motifs, there's redemption, there's the hope, right? And then there's the suffering, but the suffering occurs within the context of the hope. And that makes it meaningful. And that makes it purposeful. That's how you're able to bring it to Hashem. And I think perhaps that's the Pshad in the Medrash. 
right? Because the Medrash wasn't just simp ask, simply asking a question of how you create light. The Medrash was asking a fundamental question of why do the righteous suffer? And the answer is, well, there's the garment, right? There's the light, that's HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then there's the garment, that's the darkness, that's the Hester Panim. And the light shines through the darkness, and that's our job. Our job is to find that. But here's the thing. You can only learn that lesson in a whisper, and you can only teach it to somebody else in a whisper. So what does that mean, to learn it and to teach it in a whisper? Whispering is a very powerful imagery. Because in order to hear a whisper, you need to be close. And if you think about it, the Medrash gives us the ultimate distance, right? It talks about the Hester Panim. It talks about the hiding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light in this garment. And yet at the same time, we're talking about it being a whisper. And here's the key. If you want to learn the secret to suffering, it's going to be very subtle. It's almost going to be unheard. You have to draw closer to God in the suffering in order to hear the whisper. And most people, when they've done it, it changes them, but it's so difficult to do. So for example, when you're undergoing some suffering, hopefully not too much suffering, right? but when you're undergoing some suffering, if you have a tragedy and you're able to turn towards God, it won't be that you understand why it happened because that's just speculation. We never know why things happen. But what you'll be able to hear is the whisper calling out to you and saying, find me in the darkness. And so the Talmidei Haram Chal say, what does the word matai mean? Mitzvos, tshuva, and yesurim. So when will Mashiach come? When we find God in our mitzvos, which is not so simple, because a lot of us do our mitzvos just by rote. When we find God in our Averas, and that's not so simple either, to actually do a real tshuva. And the last one is when you find God in your Yesurin, when you find God in your suffering. And that's the one that really brings Mashiach. Because ultimately, those that have suffered, but they hang in there towards those last moments, and they say, okay, but I'm here. And they're able to hear that whisper in the suffering. That's what really brings God to be revealed in this world. And that is only something you can learn in a whisper, and it's only something you can teach in a whisper. Because even right now, as I'm talking, it doesn't really mean anything to you. Because hopefully you're not in the state of suffering right now. But when you're in that state of suffering, if there is that, that chance that you have to listen to the whisper of God saying, pay attention, I'm calling out to you from within the suffering, can you find me? Well, that's exceptionally powerful. And I'd like to read to you something now, with your permission. Something that I think is very meaningful. Do you know this, Rabbi? The Chabad of Poway? Rabbi Goldstein? Well, Rabbi Goldstein wrote an article in the New York Times. I'm going to read to you the article. And I think that this is the, the ultimate response of how a Jew responds to the whisper that he hears in the suffering. And it's very powerful, so really try to listen carefully. April 29th, 2019. The article is entitled, A Terrorist Tried to Kill Me Because I Am a Jew. I Will Never Back Down. Today should have been my funeral. I was preparing to give my sermon Shabbat morning, Saturday, which was also the last day of Passover, the festival of our freedom, when I heard a loud bang in the lobby of my synagogue. 
I thought a table had fallen down, or maybe even that, God forbid, my dear friend Lori Gilbert Kay had tripped and fallen. Only a few moments earlier, I had greeted Lori there. She had come to services to say Yizger, the morning prayer for her late mother. I went to the lobby to check on her. What I saw in those seconds will haunt me for the rest of my days. I saw Lori bleeding on the ground, and I saw the terrorist who murdered her. This terrorist was a teenager. He was standing there with a big rifle in his hands, and he was now aiming it at me for one reason. I am a Jew. He started shooting. My right index finger got blown off. Another bullet hit my left index finger, which started gushing blood. After the massacre in Pittsburgh, we had a community training. Now that training kicked in. Somehow my brain directed my body to the synagogue ballroom, where the children, including two of my grandchildren, were playing. I ran toward them screaming, get out, get out. I grabbed as many as I could with my bloody hands and pushed them out of the building. One of our congregants that day, Almug Peretz, a veteran of the Israeli Defense Forces, ran after me to help get the children to safety and took a bullet in the leg. His eight-year-old niece, Noya Dahan, took some shrapnel to hers. Then an amazing miracle occurred. The terrorist gun jammed. The terrorist gun jammed. Two other heroic congregants, an army veteran named Oscar Stewart and an off-duty border patrol agent named Jonathan Morales, rushed toward him and he fled. The ambulances had not yet arrived. We all gathered outside. I don't remember all that I said to my community, but I do remember quoting a passage from the Passover Seder liturgy. In every generation they rise against us to destroy us, and the Holy One, blessed be He, saves us from their hand. And I remember shouting the words, Am Yisrael Chai, the people of Israel live. I have said that line hundreds of times in my life, but I have never felt the truth of it more than I did then. I am a religious man. I believe everything happens for a reason. I do not know why God spared my life. I do not know why I had to witness scenes of a pogrom in San Diego County like the ones my grandparents experienced in Poland. I don't know why a part of my body was taken away from me. I don't know why I had to see my good friend, a woman who embodied the Jewish value of chesed, hunted in her house of worship. I don't know why I had to watch Lori's beloved husband, a doctor, faint as he tried to resuscitate her. And then their only daughter, Hannah, sob in agony as she encountered both her parents collapsed on the floor. I do not know God's plan. All I can do is try to find meaning in what has happened and to use this borrowed time to make my life matter more. I used to sing a song to my children, a song that my father sang to me when I was a child. Hashem is here, I would sing, using a Hebrew name for God, pointing, to my right in, pointing with my right index finger to the sky. Hashem is there, I would sing, pointing to my right and left. Hashem is truly everywhere. That finger I would use to point out God's, God's omnipresence was taken from me. I pray that my missing finger serves as a constant reminder to me, a reminder that every single human being is created in the image of God, a reminder that I am part of a people that has survived the worst destruction and will always endure, a reminder that my ancestors gave their lives so that I can live in freedom in America, and a reminder, most of all, never ever not to be afraid to be Jewish. From here on in, I am going to be more brazen. I am going to be even more proud and walking down the street wearing my tzitzis and kippah, acknowledging God's presence. And I'm going to use my voice until I'm hoarse to urge my fellow Jews to do Jewish, to light candles before Shabbat, to put up mezuzahs on their doorposts, to do acts of kindness, and to show up in synagogue, especially this coming Shabbat. I am a proud emissary of Chabad Labavitch, a movement of Hasidic Judaism. Our leader, the great Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, famously taught that a little light expels a lot of darkness. That is why Chabad rabbis tra travel all over the world to set up Jewish communities. I have colleagues in Kathmandu, in Ghana, as well as in Paris and Sydney. We believe that helping any human being tap into their divine spark is a step toward fixing this broken world and bringing closer the redemption of humanity. It is why 33 years ago my wife and I came to this corner of California to build a house of light. 
Because we are obviously Jewish, identifiable by our black hats and beards, it has also meant that some of us have been targets before. Eleven years ago, my colleagues, Rabbi Gavriel and Rivka Holtzberg, who ran the Chabad of Mumbai, India, were murdered with the four of their guests. They were targeted by the terrorist group Lashkar-e-Taliba because they were Jewish. And over the years, people I know have been harassed and assaulted by thugs in the neighborhood where I grew up, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, in incidents that typically go unreported by the press. In his vile manifesto, the terrorist who shot up my synagogue called my people, the Jewish people, a squalid and parasitic race. No. We are a people divinely commanded to bring God's light into the world. So it is with this country. America is unique in world history. Never before was a country founded on the ideals that all people are created in God's image and that all people deserve freedom and liberty. We fought a war to make that promise real, and I believe we can make it real again. That is what I pledge to do with my borrowed time. Well, that's just an exceptional response to the whisper of suffering. 